The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, we've heard the first week of testimony in the prosecution's case against accused George Floyd killer Derek Chauvin, and it was filled with dramatic moments and revelations. Court TV's Michael Ayala returns to the podcast to talk about five of the biggest moments from the trial so far. This is the Court TV podcast with Vinnie Politan. Welcome to the Court TV podcast. I'm Vinnie Politan. Thanks so much for downloading and listening. And we at Court TV are in the midst of the case against Derek Chauvin, the man accused of murdering George Floyd. And each day has been uh, important in this case. And, you know, sometimes there are trials where, you know, there's days like, ah, that, you know, nothing really happened today. It's not that important. It's kind of stuck. No, every day important witnesses have taken the stand. It's been emotional. Um, it, it's been riveting. And, and I don't know where the case is going. You know, we never know till the end. But um, I want to bring in Michael Ayala, my uh, colleague at Court TV, fellow anchor. We were both with the original Court TV, with the rebooted Court TV. Um, uh, Michael, I- I'm pretty amazed with this trial that each day we've been in, inside uh, and watching our cameras inside, watching what's happening. There's been important stuff happening. And, and every witness seems to say something extremely significant. And I, I am fascinated by what's going on in that courtroom. Yeah, Benny, I mean, it's really been a, a tour de force in terms of trial management, because it's not that easy when you go to try a case and organizing your witnesses, uh, putting them out in the correct order to keep the jury interested, making sure that you're keeping your questioning tight, a couple of times where perhaps they went on a little long about certain witnesses' backgrounds or whatever, but at the end of the day, um, you're right. Just about every witness that's taken the stand has had something uh, important to add to this case, and and if not, um, they had something extremely emotional to say to add to sort of the overall feeling about the case. All right, we're in the midst of it, and 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 as we are recording now you know witness they're in a break in court but they're getting ready to put more witnesses on the stand uh i want to focus on five big witnesses so far that we have seen in this case and i want to begin with a man named donald williams one of the bystanders he was the one who was probably most vocal the one you might remember the most uh from watching or listening to that viral video and hearing his voice pleading with police let's take a listen to the testimony of donald williams Again, you made a statement to Agents Garvey and Eckert and in that statement you said Your Honor, I'm going to object to this form of cross-examination. Overruled. Overruled. In that statement, you said, like, I really wanted to beat the shit out of the police officers. Mm-hmm. You said that. Yeah, I did. That's what I felt. You were angry. No, you can't paint me. I was angry. I was, I was in a position where I had to be controlled, of controlled professionalism. I wasn't angry because I stayed on the object is non-responsive. All right, that's the cross-examination of Donald Williams. And this guy has an amazing background, number one. Uh, but I just wanted to put a little little context. The defense is trying to take the bystanders who were there 
and, and argued to this jury ultimately that they were an angry group of people, they were a potential threat, and they were a diversion and distraction for Officer Chauvin and perhaps the reason why his knee remained on his back or on his neck for those nine minutes and 29 seconds. And they tried to lay the groundwork there, Michael, by trying to paint Donald Williams as an angry man, a threatening man. An angry black man. You can say it, Vinny. <laughs> it's fair. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, <clears throat> at the end of the day, um, that's that's their defense, and they're doing the best they can. I mean, I think we've talked about it. It's going to be tough um, based on video evidence to make that defense fly. But if they are, he's a poster boy for it because not only was he physically moving towards the scene and had to be told to get back, I think Officer Tao even had to put his hand on him for a second, um, to which point Donna Williams told him, get your hands off me, um, and he would back up. And so he certainly was listening to commands, but he was someone who was trying to enter that scene, that stage area. He, um, Eric Nelson, I think, did a decent job of trying to upset him in the courtroom. What you heard there was just a small snippet of him trying to upset Donald Williams in the courtroom. And I think it was relatively successful to show that he can be agitated under the right circumstances, which I think was a nice sort of visual for the jury in terms of supporting um, Nelson's theory of, of the case. And Donald Williams is a guy who, who, who got on the witness stand and was more than just a, a witness. He was almost became an expert because he's trained. He was, a, he was a wrestler in high school and I think in college and then became an MMA guy, mixed martial arts. And he was testifying about what he was observing uh, the defendant, the accused murderer, Derek Chauvin, doing to George Floyd. Yeah, and I think his testimony on direct was very important for the prosecution, because as you said, the, the judge allowed him to testify about what he saw and to opine on what he thought uh, Derek Chauvin was doing. And he talked about something called the shimmy. Now, I'm also a practitioner of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and a shimmy, he explained it very well in the courtroom that you could see one point where Chauvin seems to put more pressure, uh, takes his weight, puts it onto the neck, and seems to be digging his knee into the neck to get a closer and tighter sort of push against that sort of carotid artery, which is what puts somebody out and cuts off the airflow. And he said, well, I could see it. He doesn't let him testify to that. I thought it was important testimony because when we talk about proving intent, I think that's one of the areas that on, clo on closing arguments, the prosecution is going to say, a number of things prove intent, but that being one of them as well, because there were a couple of other witnesses who testified similarly. And I've never seen this before in a trial where ordinary witnesses become quasi experts. And we've seen it in, in more than one of the bystanders and other people who are taking the stand throughout. Um, do you feel that Donald Williams, uh, because it, what I saw in his eyes and, and the way he was testifying, he likes to spar. Right. He's a guy who's who's a wrestler. He's a competitor. And I saw him kind of take that posture when he was being cross examined. Like, OK, I know he's coming at me. I'm ready for him. Um, how do you think the jury reads that? Do they read that as they kind of like this guy because he's ready to do battle? Or do they look at him as someone who maybe has an agenda and you've got to look at the credibility of what he's saying? It's tough, Benny. I think that has a lot to do with where you come from. Right. I loved him. 
right? Because I kind of come from, from that mindset, you know, where you, you're challenged, so you step up to the challenge. And I think that's how he came across. I think if you're not used to that kind of thing, you can look at a guy like that and think, oh, he can be a little dangerous. He's a little angry. He's somebody we got to be careful with. Um, but at the end of the day, if you kind of know that guy, and I kind of know the Donald Williams is, um, you know, they're, they're tough guys. And, and one of the things that I think put him in a position to be so angry as to what he was seeing was he thought that there was someone who was um, in, a, in a compromised position being treated in, in a really bad way. And I think that upset him because as much as he's a fighter, he's not a guy that's going to go pick on a weak guy. He's the guy that's going to protect the weak guy. And I think that's what he was feeling at that scene. So I think at the end of the day, overall, it was a net positive. Yeah, I just found him to be an incredibly interesting person who has an amazing, incredible background and, and just perspective and way of looking at things. So uh, clearly kept my interest. We'll see what the jury does with it. Um, another witness, another one of the bystanders. And, you know, Donald Williams was the, was the loudest um, and, and the one that I remembered from the video. But then there's the bystander who actually shot the video. Her name is Darnella. She's, she was only 17 when she shot the video, and that is what really started this entire case. She took the witness stand, and it was emotional. We didn't get to see her on camera, uh, but we got to hear her. And uh, even just hearing her voice, like you're going to hear in just a second, to me uh, was a very moving part of, of this case so far and kind of put a, a lot of perspective into what it's really about. Let's take a listen. When I look at George Floyd, I look at I look at my dad, I look at my brothers, I look at my cousins, my uncles, because they are all black. I have black I have a black father, I have a black brother, I have black friends. And I I look at that and I look at how that could have been one of them. It's been nights. I stayed up apologizing and and apologizing to George Floyd for not doing more and not physically interacting and not saving his life but it's like it's not what I should have done it's what he should have done he should have that's real emotion. You, you know, you can, you know, skeptics out there can talk about sometimes in, in the trials we cover on court TV, you know, not tears. Not, no, that's real. What I just heard was real. A 17-year-old who, who witnessed a man die and knows that she is the one who took that uh, video. And feeling almost, almost like survivor's guilt, Michael, is, is what I'm getting from her and some of the other bystanders who were there that day. But clearly, uh, you know, there's nothing they could have done. You can't physically intervene. That it would have gotten much, much worse. Vinny, I, I can't, I don't think I've ever heard testimony as real, as emotional, as devastating as that. I mean, when we talk about this trial 20 years from now, uh, her testimony is going to be what we talk about. Um, I thought her testimony was incredibly real, incredibly emotional, incredibly important. Important in the sense that Number one, for a from a legal standpoint, she was a minor. So um, Derek Chauvin committing a crime uh, in front of a minor 
allows the prosecution to ask for a higher upward departure in the sentencing. So if he's convicted, that's on the table. But, but in another sense, I thought she was important because I think there are people on the jury who may have struggled with the entire Black Lives Matter movement and some of the things that happened in the aftermath of the death. And I think her testimony galvanized what this case was about, why there was so much anger, why the black community responded the way they did. I think it crystallized that for them. It let them know exactly what was at stake in this trial and why just about every black American watches that video and has and feels a certain way about that video. Um, whereas perhaps other folks might not feel the same way. And, and I think she galvanized that perfectly and, and, and I think probably was the most important of the bystander witnesses in that sense. And my takeaway from that was the the feeling of helplessness, that there was nothing I could do in that situation. And, and she did what she could by recording the video, and then the video goes viral, and then um, we end up here with this trial. You know, with, without without the bystander videos, you know, I think there's a big question mark as to how this all would have Result, what would have happened? No, there's no we, question. We just don't mark. know. There's no question mark, Vinny. This case would not have been prosecuted if there was no video. No question about it. Well, I, 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 I can't go that far. I'm, I'm going I, that I absolutely far. Can't. That's why yeah, I'm I, I can't go that far because there's body, there's body cameras and there's a, a, you know, an officer involved death and there's going to be an investigation. So I, I just don't know mm -hmm. the politics of the internal investigations. In the problem in is, it doesn't become a viral video. Um, the outrage of the nation and the world is not sort of, you know, uh, galvanized that way. So I'm not sure without that kind of pressure, this goes down the way it went down. Um, this would have been internally investigated and it would have taken months and months and they would have done what they normally do in these circumstances. So uh, I'm, I'm skeptical. I'll, I'll go that far. And, and as far as, you know, the, 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 the survivor's guilt that you described, I think it goes so far, Vinny, as to be PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. I think, um, the, you know, the prosecutor's office, they have counseling services, I sure hope all of those victims who seem to have expressed this kind of feeling, we saw this in a few of them, I hope they're all getting help because that stuff doesn't go away. It sits inside and it really just festers, and, you know, can become something a lot worse if it's not dealt with. So I'm hoping they're getting some help and talking to someone about it. And to put it in perspective, think, you know, you think about the way just the video, watching the video has impacted people. Um, all these bystanders, I mean, they witnessed it firsthand. They, they were there. They saw in real time what was happening. Another one of the bystanders who testified uh, is a woman named Genevieve, Genevieve Hansen. And a really another one of these interesting bystanders who's, who's, who's walking by because she's a firefighter. She's, an, she's a trained EMT. And she tried to intervene. Let's take a listen to some of the testimony from uh, Genevieve Hansen. Do you remember what kinds of things they were saying? Um, no, I was pretty focused on um, trying to get the officers to let me help. And how were you doing that, trying to get the officers to focus on you and get help? Uh, I think, I've, in my memory, I tried different tactics of um, calm and reasoning um, and tried to be assertive um, I I pled and was desperate so this is a, a, a bystander who is trained to help and to save people she saw something was going on that was terribly wrong and she tried to 
intervene. And we've seen her in the video. And again, Tutau, who's the one who's doing crowd control, is the one who keeps her from intervening. Um, I've, I've spoken to police officers and even ones who agree uh, with prosecutors in this case, which is most police officers that I've interviewed, uh, would not have allowed, uh, you know, an EMT out of uniform to intervene here anyway. But how do you think that issue plays? Because for a lot of people, they're like, well, you should have let her let her intervene. She was a firefighter. Let her in there. Yeah, I think, um, you know, interacting with the folks on social media, uh, friends of mine as well, um, all felt that same way. You know, why didn't they let her in? And I agree. I think um, it's very uh, understandable um, that they didn't let her in. And, and Nelson was uh, sure to ask her, you know, she, she appeared in court very differently than she did at the scene. She was in sweatsuit at the scene very clearly on the video. Um, in court, she appeared in her dress uniform. Um, he, he made sure to say, hey, you weren't wearing that uniform that day, correct? So the, the officers couldn't identify her through the uniform. Then he also asked her, did she have ID that day, uh, that she was an EMT? And she had to answer, no, she did not have ID. So without ID, without the uniform, no way the police know uh, who she is, what she's capable of, no matter what she says. And to let her into the scene not only puts them in danger, puts her in danger as well in, their, in the mindset of a police officer who is with what they call staging a scene, trying to keep the scene safe. So no problem there. Um, what she does provide is someone who has a, a modicum of medical training, able to clearly see that there was a problem and able to identify that someone was in distress very clearly and notified the police officers, even if you don't wanna believe that she has that background or whatever, she is letting them know that he is in distress, please do something, and they still don't. So she was valuable in that sense as well. You know, there was a point, though, on cross-examination, her demeanor changed a lot. She was um, clearly, uh, again, another one of the witnesses who was doing a little bit of battle with the defense. But there was a point where uh, Eric Nelson, the attorney for Derek Chauvin, was going through the timeline of when um, the, the EMS was called and when this became a Code 3. And she did not believe the timeline that Eric Nelson laid out when he said, uh, it had been six minutes since a code three was called in and EMS still had not responded. And she says, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. And, and to me, that was that could be potentially down the road, a major point for uh, the defense here in that the EMS, for whatever reason, responded to the scene much more slowly than they normally would. Because Genevieve Hansen, who works as an EMT firefighter, said code three, they're there in two or three minutes. And, and she had been, uh, she, when she got on scene, uh, co the, the Code 3 call had gone in like five or six minutes before she was even on scene. And she uh, found it hard to believe that they had not responded yet. Yeah, because she, I guess, works in a nearby firehouse. And her point was um, they were close enough that if they got a Code 3 type call, they would have been there in two to three minutes because they were close enough by. And the fact that it was taking six to seven to eight minutes, whatever it was, um, didn't make any sense to her at that point. And you're right. I mean, that becomes an issue. I mean, at the end of the day, it's, you know, they initially made that code two call, which is, you know, take your time. We just have a situation. We're probably going to need you get here when you can, which was then upgraded a few minutes later to the code three. Um, and Nelson later on in the trial actually played a little bit of audio from the scene where um, the cops actually tell the bystanders, hey, we're waiting for an ambulance. Um, and so, you know, that's going to be a big part of that defense. So you're right. It could become an issue.
All right, we've got some more um, testimony to go through, some more moments from some important witnesses who testified. We're going to continue to do that. Um, again, folks, uh, Court TV is covering this case gavel to gavel, so make sure you're tuning in uh, to watch all of this live. We'll be right back. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel -gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front-row seat to justice. We're taking a listen to... Uh so far, five really important witnesses who have testified. But as we've been saying, I mean, each day in the in the course of this trial against Derek Chauvin, the man accused of murdering George Floyd, there's been important witnesses and, and issues. And it's interesting to watch the way the defense is trying to slowly build their case through the prosecution case. But uh, some of these witnesses are just steamrolling through, and it's hard for the defense to get uh, – a lot of traction so far, to say the least. Uh, Michael Ayala is still with me. Uh, Michael, before we listen to the, the next uh, witness, I want to talk about his background a little bit. This is another interesting man. His name is Charles McMillan, and I refer to him as bystander number one. He's the first one to really show up, um, but an, another interesting guy with an interesting outlook on life and, and, and the way he has seen things. How would you describe uh, Charles McMillan? You know, Charles McMillan, if you grew up in, in sort of a rough neighborhood, there's always a Charles McMillan, right? A Charles McMillan is a guy that knows everybody. He kind of knows everybody's business. As a matter of fact, he even testified that he stopped to watch because he was being nosy, right? He kind of knows everybody's business, knows the local officer, if there happens to be one, or officers that may respond to the area, said that he knew Derek Chauvin. Um, and everybody kind of respects him. And, you know, he probably had a little trouble back in his early life and turned it around and has a real interesting perspective. And I think that's how he played to me on, on this scene. A guy who loves his neighborhood, loves his neighbors, you know, has been through a lot. But, you know, and now he's had to witness something that I think um, he just never would have expected. And, I, I'm, you know, I'm growing up that way i would imagine he's seen some things but i think this just took it to another level and he had a hard time with it and, and it was probably one of the you know more emotional moments of his trial it really was and and he broke down absolutely broke down and this is a man who has seen a lot uh in his lifetime and and broke down and you I would play the clip for you right here on the podcast, but there's there's moments of nothing because he he just he can't say anything, he can't do anything, and, and you 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 see this um, man who is again watching the video in front of this jury and is having a difficult time handling it, and again he saw it in real time as well, and his perspective when he first showed up, he's trying to get George Floyd to, to cooperate because he's in handcuffs. Come on, just, just, just go. You, you, there's, there's, there's no, there's nowhere to go right now. You just gotta, you know, it's over. And then when he sees what's, what's transpiring, he then starts talking to police. Like, listen, come on guys, you got to do something here. So he's, he's, he comes, I think he comes to the witness stand as someone who doesn't have an agenda, who, who, someone who is, who, who sees both uh, perspectives of what happened here and to me, gives him a, a level of credibility. Let's take a listen. There are also, before that, some statements about you can't win, get up and get in the car. Was that also you? Yes, ma'am. 
Um, again, was that what you were describing earlier, just trying to help with him? What, could you describe what you were trying to do at that point? Basically, what I'm saying is he can't wear it because once, like I said before, once the police get the cuffs on you, you can't win. So I'm trying to tell him just cooperate with him. Get up if you can, get in the car, go with him. You can win. And um, did he say I can't to you? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, and did you understand him to be talking to you? Yes, ma'am. And um, when when you were saying you know your knee on his neck, what what were you, were you concerned in that moment? Yes, ma'am. And, and why was that? Because he's that is saying I can't breathe. You know my stomach hurt. You know he's saying things that made me believe that he's in trouble. When you say in trouble, do you what, what do you mean by that? He's gonna die. Watching and listening to him in the video, um, he's the first one to approach the scene, and he's trying to make everything go smoothly. He's trying so hard because in his life he's seen he knows things can go bad. And this went, this went as bad as it can go. And to me, that adds to his credibility. Everything he says just seems, okay, he's making sense to me, Michael. Yeah, he, he's the mayor. He's the mayor of the neighborhood. He wants, he, wants, he wants everyone to be okay. doesn't want to see anyone hurt. You know, feels for George. He's trying to talk to him and say, look, I know the cops have a job to do, and they got it. They got you, brother. Get in the car. Take care of it. You'll deal with it at another time. This is not the time or place. Because he knows, of course, you've got these cops around you. Things can go bad relatively quickly. And he knows it. And slowly but surely, he's watching it unfold in front of him. And again, the sense of helplessness kicks in. This idea that they can't do anything to help this man. Um, I think it's important testimony, not only from that standpoint, but also from the standpoint that you know, George Floyd is speaking to him, someone who's not a police officer, saying the same things that he's physically exhibiting. The fact that I'm not trying to win. I just can't. I can't go in this car. Again, these are things that were then earshot of the police officers. They see it. He's then questioning them as well. Someone who's just a lay person, someone who knows the area, who just a few minutes ago was on their side saying, hey, get in the car with these guys. You'll deal with it later. And later, he's telling them, look, what, what are you doing? He's in distress. You need to change the way you're approaching it. So, yeah, I think, yeah, I don't think you could do a lot better than Charles McNeil. And for the defense, this is a witness you just stay away from. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no reason to question him. Uh, he said what he said. Uh, they may be able to talk about, you know, the beginning of what he uh, witnessed and, and George Floyd not getting into the, the car and not making this thing just end right then. They may use that. But they wanted him off the stand as quickly as possible because that, that emotion was so real. And, and we keep saying that. Uh, and, and there was a lot of that in, in the prosecution case, which is um, surprising because sometimes in these murder trials we cover, Michael, the, the, there's almost this lack of emotion that it's difficult for prosecutors to make the victim uh, real inside the courtroom and make them uh, a, a real person because of the nature of those cases. This one is the exact opposite because there are people there that are experiencing this. They are reliving this. And as a result, the jury is living through this. It didn't surprise me, Vinny, because there's a reason that this viral video caused a worldwide movement. Because what you see on that video is, is devastating. 
and, and you watch it and you cannot understand it. And, you know, the defense is doing their best to have folks understand it, but you still, it's difficult to understand. So when you talk about someone witnessing it with their own eyes and being close enough to maybe have had affect the outcome and not be able to or feel as though they couldn't or be stopped from doing that, I mean, that's devastating. So it didn't surprise me at all. But I'll tell you this, Charles McMillan may end up being important in the defense's case for one reason. After things are all over, Charles talks to Derek Chauvin and asks him about what happened. And the only, you know, Derek Chauvin, I doubt, is going to take the stand, but he testifies in that video when he responds to Charles McMillian, when he says, I had to hold him down. He's a big guy. And it shows that perhaps there wasn't some kind of nefarious intent, that this was what was going on in his mind. Derek Chauvin may not have to take the stand, but on that video in his conversation with Charles McMillian, he may be testifying for this jury. Yeah, and that that's the closest that we may get to any statement by by Chauvin about what he's thinking. That that's a huge point. That's a huge point. You know, it it's it's difficult to gauge because the the one thing that the defense is not doing in this case, which some defense attorneys do, which is when they're making the big points, they're like really hitting them so like everyone understands, oh yeah, this is a big thing, but there's been lots of little points that he's or, or maybe potentially big points he's made. But they're all being done sort of in a continuum with everything else. So it's almost like flatlining across the entire case that we don't know when something big is really happening for the defense. Maybe he pulls it all together in his closing argument. Maybe that's his strategy. Maybe that's his, his rope-a-dope style. I don't know. We shall see. Um, speaking of, of, of witnesses, the other thing that, that – so the bystanders testified, and they kind of grouped them together. And then we moved on to the next section of the prosecution case, which is – Again, something very unusual, um, but not unexpected in a case like this because it's a, a former police officer who is on trial. And you now have a series of police officers uh, from Minneapolis testifying against Derek Chauvin, cop versus cop, including the chief of police. But I want to play a clip from uh, Lieutenant Richard Zimmerman because he had uh, he got up there and, and, and just the. His body language, the way he spoke, it was clear to me and I think everyone in that courtroom that he believed what Derek Chauvin did was absolutely um, ridiculous, was, it was, was outrageous. Take a listen. Pulling him down to the ground face down and putting your knee on the neck for that amount of, uh, that amount of time is just um, uncalled for. Um, I saw no reason why the officers felt they were in danger, if that's what they felt. Um, and that's what they would have to feel to be able to use that kind of force. So in your opinion, should that restraint have stopped once he was handcuffed and prone on the ground? Absolutely. It's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. And this is a police officer. And you've got a whole series of these police officers, Michael, who were testifying against a cop. And years ago, that might have been something that you would think would be, uh, that would never happen. You know, the blue wall of silence, et cetera, et cetera. That's not the case here. Not at all. And to me, Lieutenant uh, Zimmerman uh, really, you know, uh, took it to the next level because, he, no, he was looking at it, No, this is ridiculous what he did. There's no, there's absolutely no, 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 there's no gray area here. This is not what you do. 
Yeah, you know, he was an interesting witness, Vinny. He was, he, he's been on the force since 85. He is the most tenured cop in the entire Minneapolis Police Department. He's a lieutenant, right? You don't get to be a lieutenant in a major municipality without being real smart, okay? So he's very smart. He's also, from my understanding, uh, talking to attorneys out there, someone who testifies a lot in cases, and that came across. He, his whole demeanor, the way he spoke, the way he said things, how he responded on cross, when he answered, he returned to the jury, all those things, very, very, very effective. Zimmerman was one of 14 officers who put out a letter condemning what Derek Chauvin did that day. So that takes a tremendous amount of courage, someone who feels very good about his position, very strong in his position. And in no uncertain terms, he got in that courtroom and said, this guy does not represent anything that we do. What he did that day does not in any way, shape or form represent any, anything we're taught, doesn't represent anything that we learn when we're learning how to be police officers. And he's not an expert, he's just a cop. So there's, there's expert testimony and that comes across one way. But when you have your most tenured cop coming in there saying this, I think it was extremely powerful for the prosecution. Yeah, when it's, when it's cop versus cop. And, and experts can, you know, police officers can be experts, right? They can bring, but they'll bring in outside experts. You'll have uh, an expert from the LAPDs coming in for the prosecution. The defense will have their own experts. And, and that is what it is, right? Um, but these are, these are, you know, everyday police officers. They all worked together. They were on the same police force. They were um, co-workers, teammates, however you want to want to phrase it. And for them to turn on on Chauvin to me is, is powerful because it, it doesn't happen. How many times have you seen a, a police officer on trial and you look in the gallery? Obviously, not in this case because there, there is no gallery, but you'd see a bunch of officers in, in their uniforms sitting behind the accused officer. Right. That's not happening here. Uh, not happening at all, Michael. No, the, the, the support isn't there in that sense. I think the union overall is supporting him. They're certainly paying for his defense. But I think in the rank and file, there are a lot of people who are trying to separate themselves from this situation, knowing that what they saw was something extremely questionable. Um, you know, again, there's a school of thought that, you know, there's a totality of the circumstances. We're hearing that from the defense. That is their defense, that he was making decisions in real time based on his interpretation of the situation. So there's certainly that to consider. Um, you don't want to convict someone, they're innocent until proven guilty. But certainly there are a lot of people uh, high up in that police department who, you know, Vinny, we can't discount this political aspect of this too, um, that politically want to separate themselves uh, from Derek Chauvin and what he did that day. Michael Ayala, always great. Uh, I know you got to get back and get ready for the show tonight. Thanks so much. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Vinny. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, uh, as Michael and I have gone through here, some powerful witnesses for the prosecution. And it's been a strong case. It's been a real strong case. You know, when prosecutors can bring emotion to the table and can uh, have this take the jury to the scene, it is it's important and it's very compelling. But I will tell you, as I watch all these witnesses take the stand and get off the stand, get on the stand, off the stand as they piece together this case, there's one big piece that to me seems to be missing. And I'll tell you what it is when we come back.
Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area. So the prosecution has been doing a great job in, in putting together their case. The jury has seen the video. They've heard from all the bystanders who were there. They recounted what they saw. You've got um, police officers testifying against police officers and, and, and providing their expertise. And, and everyone's saying, you know, the maneuver that he was doing, this neck restraint, it, it made no sense. There was no reason for it. And, and you stop once the resistance stops. You just, you've got him handcuffed. You've got him in a prone position. You've got to roll him on, your side, on his side. Um, all of this, you've got the emergency room doctor uh, testifying about asphyxia. I mean, all of this is strong, strong evidence for the prosecution as they piece together their case. And it should be strong. I mean, think about um, the one piece of evidence, the video itself. And it's actually a series of videos because of all the body cams as well. The video is the most powerful piece of evidence that a prosecutor has had in their hands in, I think, my entire career at court TV. Right? Because this isn't just, just you know, okay, you've got uh, you know, the smoking gun to a case, whatever it is. But this is a, a piece of evidence that we know, we know for a fact how it has impacted people and how it has has caused change and it's because of the reaction to the video and some of these jurors had never seen it before and they saw it for the first time in the courtroom so that the same impact that it had on you me uh, cities across the country um, cities around the world it will have on that jury so that's advantage prosecution but as I listen to all these witnesses testify about what they saw what they heard how they felt, what they would have done, etc. There's there's one piece, and Michael touched on it a little bit. There's one piece of evidence that is just not that evident in this case, and that is Derek Chauvin's state of mind when it comes to the intent element that is necessary for second-degree murder. When you're a prosecutor, you're going for the top charge. That's what your case is about. Your case is about the top charge. Your case isn't about the middle charge or the bottom charge, because if it was, then you wouldn't have charged the top charge. Okay, it's that simple. You charge someone with first degree murder and they're also charged with assault and robbery. The case is not about assault and robbery. The case is about first degree murder. Well, here the top charge is second degree murder. It is like felony murder in any other state. They call it second degree unintentional murder in Minnesota. And as part of that, you've got to prove a, an underlying felony. Here, it's a third-degree assault. So they've, they've got to prove an intentional um, bodily harm, okay? That there was an intent to cause bodily harm by Derek Chauvin. That's an element. You've got to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Not just, yeah, I think he did that, or he probably was, was, wanted to do that. No, he absolutely wanted to do that. And in his opening statement... The prosecutor said, you know, intent will be sprinkled throughout. Well, to me, that was a big red flag when I heard that. And now as the evidence is coming in, um, that red flag is still waving. 
because to prove this second degree, you've got to prove an intentional assault, okay? And, and where is that evidence coming from? It's difficult because if you talk about, well, the neck restraint, he should have stopped or he, he, he did it wrong or he should have rolled him over. Well, does, does that prove intent or does that prove negligence? What, what exactly does that prove? It's almost a toss up. It could be this or it could be that. And, and when you have in a courtroom, it could be this or the, it could be that. And you're the prosecutor. That's called reasonable doubt. You, you can't. You can't argue to a jury, well, ladies and gentlemen, the jury, you know, look at his actions and come on, you know, he, 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 he probably intended to, to hurt him. It looked like he, he wanted to, to hurt him. No, you've got to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt that he intended to hurt him. And intent sometimes is difficult to prove. Sometimes it's not difficult to prove, right? Sometimes uh, the action itself, like there, there's no, like if you take a gun pointed at someone, say, I'm going to kill you, and you squeeze the trigger, and you've got it on video, intent is easy to prove, right? But here, you're in an area of, of mishmash because he's a police officer um, on duty trying to arrest someone, right? So it's not like he met a stranger and threw handcuffs on him and put him on the ground, right? If it was me and it wasn't a police officer and I just came across someone and I, and I uh, put handcuffs on him, I threw him on the ground, I got a couple of my friends and said, and I held him down. That's one thing because I'm not a police officer. I'm not doing my job. I'm not putting someone under arrest. So already you've got this, this situation where there are different explanations for the actions, like he's handcuffing him because he's under arrest. He's putting him down in the prone position because George Floyd did not cooperate to get into the, into the squad car like they originally tried to do. So now you've got to go from where you are in that situation to try to prove that he's intending to cause bodily harm to George Floyd. He wants to assault him. And that's the only explanation that is reasonable. Okay? That's the key. It has to be the only reasonable explanation. It can't be one of two or one of three or one of four. The only. And I'm not seeing that because a lot of the testimony and evidence, even from the prosecution, is that, yeah, there's some training. Yeah, you could do this maneuver, but then you stop or you do this. So that could be explained by, well, he's, he's not doing it correctly. He went too long. Well, he went too long. That's, that's it, negligently uh, 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 doing the police training restraint that you learn to do, right? I, I could prove that, but can I, can I prove that he intended to? And that's where you need something more. And, and that's my fear uh, for prosecutors when it comes to second-degree murder is the intent element is going to be absolutely difficult, absolutely difficult, because you're asking the jury to read his mind. And he's not going to testify. I don't think he's going to. Sometimes that can come out uh, through cross-examination. You can reveal his, his, his true motives in all of it. But it's going to be tough because of the whole situation. And, and it's not just this case. It's, it's most cases involving police officers who are doing their job when things go south and they end up getting indicted for whatever they did because the whole situation started lawfully in that, hey, He's doing his job as a police officer, and then this happened. It's not like he got into a fight with a stranger or he abducted a stranger 
or he attacked a stranger. No, he was doing his job first, and then they've got to prove at some point during all of this it shifts, and all of a sudden his mindset goes from I'm a police officer arresting someone to I want to hurt this man. I want to commit an assault. That's the challenge for the prosecution. All right, folks, here's the challenge for you. You know, we are live gavel to gavel with our coverage Monday through Friday, starting 9 o'clock in the morning. But maybe you missed some of the testimony. Maybe you missed some of the testimony during the week, and you can't even catch my show from 8 to 11 every night. Well, every weekend, um, we are are doing uh, sort of a a catch-up for you. This week in the Derek Chauvin trial, where you can see all the big moments from all week, back to back to back to back, and really get a flavor and a feel for what's happening in the, in the trial and in the case. And if you um, have a digital antenna and you can't find Court TV, the network, please rescan that antenna and uh, you will find us. In, in the meantime, uh, a lot of coverage uh, still ahead. Make sure you're watching. Uh, we will be back next week with another podcast taking you inside the courtroom uh, with our analysis. In the meantime, I'm Vinny Politan. Have a great week. And as always, don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.